0: Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 18. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can turn to Psalm 18. If you have a copy of one of the church Bibles, that's page 424. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand nice and high and one of the ushers would bring you a copy of God's word. Again, our scripture reading is from Psalm 18. Psalm 18, this is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, the psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he set out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters." He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blame- with, blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure, pure. And with the crooked, you make your way seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This is God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set, me on, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. And your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: In 2008, my parents threw an engagement party for Cheryl and I at a fancy restaurant. And during the dinner, several of the servers sang us a karaoke song that they had selected to celebrate. And to all of our horror and humor, the well-meaning staff chose the song, You Are Always On My Mind by Willie Nelson. If you know the lyrics, the song is about a man apologizing For not always treating his woman as he should have, and wondering if her love for him has died. So, although it has a catchy chorus, it's not the best song to celebrate an engagement. Take note if you have a wedding coming up and you're selecting songs. The lesson of this short story is knowing the lyrics and the intent of a song can better help us appreciate whether or not we should sing it to celebrate. Psalm 18 is our text this morning. And we'll take a look at the inscription before verse 1. It's a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the song to God on the day when the Lord had delivered him from all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So Psalm 18 is a song King David wrote to God, and he wrote it for a greater, engage, a greater event than an engagement party He wrote it to praise God for delivering him from all of his enemies. God saved the king, and the king was praising him for it. The Israelites could also rejoice in David's song. Because God saved the king of Israel, then he also saved the kingdom of Israel. King David's victory was also their victory. Now, we Christians know from Scripture that God used David's life in a special way to introduce King Jesus to the world centuries later. Jesus proved to be that promised king that came from the family line of David who would rule forever. So in a striking parallel to Israel rejoicing in their king's victory, we, the church, can also rejoice in David's song this morning because it points us toward our king's victory. Because God saved our King Jesus from all of his enemies, it follows that he has also saved the kingdom of Jesus Christ from all of our enemies. King Jesus' eternal victory is the church's eternal victory. My goal this morning is to use Psalm 18 to teach you about the benefits that we get from our King's victory. We can rejoice, Christians, that Jesus' victory means our souls are eternally secure, we've been forever rescued from death, and we have great confidence to win our spiritual battles. We have a greater King, a greater victory, and a greater hope to unpack here this morning. The first benefit of our king's eternal victory is that our souls are eternally secure in him. In verse 1, David starts his song in remembrance of God's deliverance from his enemies. The memory causes David to express his heartfelt love to God. He says, I love you, O Lord. David didn't love God because some pastor told him to or because that was his family tradition. David had real reasons to love his God. In verse 1 to 2, David provides eight metaphors that serve as reasons why he loves his God. He says, The Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. When he likens God to his strength, he has in mind a helpful strength that's found outside of his own strength and military might. When he likens God to his rock, fortress, refuge, shield, and stronghold, he has in mind the security that God provides him from his enemies. And God was his deliverer and the horn of his salvation. David means to tell us, That God is like a divine warrior who is mighty in battle. And he brings us rescue, or we can say salvation, to David from his enemies. So David loved God because God himself was his source of strength, security, and salvation. He wrote in Psalm 62, "'For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation.'" He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. In other words, if you took away all of David's military might, his wealth, and even his kingdom, he could still possess a complete sense of strength, security, and salvation found in God's loving favor and promise to him. But if he had all the military might and wealth the world could offer, but lost God's love and favor, he would have lost all his strength, security, and salvation. Therefore, in verse 3, when David had trials, he called upon the Lord. This word called speaks of frequent calls to God for help in prayer. In David's life, frequent problems meant frequent prayers how about you? Have you cried out to God for help in your trials? David's song impresses upon all of us here this morning this question, who or what are you trusting in for security in your trials? Look back at the phrase, my rock in whom I take refuge, in verse 2. The Hebrew word for rock is the same word used to describe those big rocky cliffs that David and his men hid inside when Saul and his army were trying to track him down and kill him. You might remember the story. Saul entered the cave where David was. And while Saul was relieving himself, David took a knife and cut off the end of Saul's robe. So when David says, my rock in whom I take refuge, he is recalling the cliffs that he hid in many years prior. And he's using them as a metaphor. He's triumphantly saying, God is my refuge like those giant rocky cliffs I hid in from my enemies years ago. But notice that David is saying, God himself was his rock of refuge, and not the cliffs. The cliffs provided him with some temporary protection while being pursued from his enemy, Saul. But his enemy was able to get dangerously close to David in that cliff, so close he could reach out and touch him. So David's ultimate refuge was not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. It was in God himself. Christian, non-believing friend, I repeat my question from moments ago. Who or what are you trusting in for security in your life trials? If your heart could speak and we put a microphone up to it, would it say, My health is my rock in which I take refuge. My spouse and my family is my rock in which I take refuge. My career, bank account, home ownership, or preferred political party are my rock in which I take refuge. Certainly, each of these things can be good gifts from God and provide us with some sort of temporary security in life. But like David's cliff, they are all temporary. Our health can deteriorate suddenly or in old age. Our job that funds our entire lifestyle can be lost in a company reshuffle. Our bank accounts and our home equity can fluctuate Our country of Canada has had 23 prime ministers who have averaged six and a half years in office. So even if the most trustworthy politician in your eyes were to be elected, would your sense of security only last six and a half years? We know that all of these temporary sources of earthly security can be corrupted by sin. If these temporary sources of refuge are lost in the storms of your life or the devil comes and does his business in them, what happens to your soul's refuge? Could it be that you have no hope in life this morning because you've been trusting in temporary things and not in the eternal spiritual rock that is Christ? I know these can be uncomfortable questions for us to ponder. But let's face it with sober minds. Every person, place, or thing in this world that we have looked to for lasting security is ultimately temporary. The good news is that David's song offers us greater hope. A hope that is found outside of our sinful, broken selves and outside of this sinful, broken world and eternal hope found in the eternal love of God. I want you to know this love now so your soul can be unshakable in life's trials. Take a quick look at the end of this psalm, verse 49 to 50. David closes the psalm much like he opens it by praising God for deliverance and remembering God's steadfast love toward him. So, this psalm is written within a relationship of ongoing love. Verse 1 tells us the anointed king loved his God, and verse 50 tells us God steadfastly loved the anointed king and his offspring. This is why David says, verse 3, God is worthy to be praised, because when David called out to the God he loved, the God he loved heard his call and answered. When God saved King David, Israel was secure until the next threat arose. David fought more wars after writing this song, and he saw fighting until his dying days. And yet King Jesus has secured for his kingdom citizens a better victory and a better hope. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God in your place and mine, and then rose again from the grave, he created an eternal security For those who entrust their souls to Him as their rock of refuge. Christian, listen to this precious promise from Romans 8, and you tell me how secure it makes you feel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not life's trials, not persecution, not any physical ruler, not poverty, not anything going on right now in our culture or anything that is to come on the global scene. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the mighty fortress of our God's great love in Jesus Christ. Amen? God saved our King. We, his kingdom citizens, are eternally secure from our enemies. Rejoice, Christian. Your soul is secure in the rock that is Jesus Christ forever. Which brings us to verse 4 to 19 and the second benefit King Jesus' victory brings his kingdom citizens. We've been forever rescued from death. In verse 4 to 6, David begins to recall the story of God's rescue from his enemies in a more poetic and detailed way. In verse 4, take a look, he personifies death, destruction, and the grave as hunters setting rope traps, and they're surrounding their prey. David is the prey, and they're coming in for the kill. David felt like death was encompassing, assailing, entangling, and confronting him. He felt like he could not escape because he was surrounded and trapped by death. But notice what David did with all of his distress. He didn't turn to drugs or alcohol for temporary relief. He didn't turn to pornography for temporary pleasure. Verse 6, David's distress led him to call upon the Lord. These calls were repeated requests to God for help. God, from his heavenly temple, heard his cry. David knew that he could continuously call upon God for help in his time of need. David's distress did not disable his prayers. No opponent, not even death itself, loomed larger than his God. Then in verses 7-12, to David poetically describes God rising up to rescue him like an angry divine warrior coming down in the midst of a great storm and volcanic eruption. What is clear from David's poetic description is that God was concerned with the distress of his servant and quickly rose to his aid. And his rescue of David is described in verse 13 to 19. Now up to this point, David has been using water language. To describe the overwhelming effect of his enemies. Back in verse 4, he said the effect of his enemies was like being battered by a torrent of destruction. A torrent is like a fast-moving river that's just crashing into everything in its path. Then in verse 16, he likens his rescue to being pulled out of many waters. These rough waters are a symbol of his enemies, whom David said in verse 17 were too mighty for him to defeat on his own. But he likens God's response to his cries as an even bigger storm than the storm of his enemies. Picture choppy waters in a storm being swallowed by a tsunami. And you'll understand the imagery of David is giving us here. When David cried out to God for rescue from his enemies, the greater storm of God's anger blew away and defeated the smaller storm of David's enemies. David describes God pulling him out of an overwhelming tidal wave of opposition and death in verse 19, placing him in a broad place where he was safe. And we are told why God rescued David in verse 19. God rescued David because he delighted in David. He loved his faithful servant David so much. King Jesus can relate to David and to us when it comes to the distress of opposition and death. Like King David in verse 4-6, to King Jesus felt the distress of death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' sweat dropped like blood as he knew that the hour of his crucifixion was at hand and death was closing in on him. But also like David, he too cried out to God in prayer. In Hebrews 5, 7, we read that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You see the distress there? To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was distressed because He knew He was about to face the tidal wave of all tidal waves, the wrath of God our sin deserved through death on a Roman cross. I mean, imagine the distress. I might break up a bit here. Imagine the distress our King submitted to to save us. The emotional distress of a betrayal with a kiss, an unjust arrest, Illegal trial and a miscarriage of justice. False accusations, derision and mockery. Imagine the physical distress of the beatings, the floggings, the crown of thorns, and the crucifixion. But Jesus also knew that He could take all of that distress and pray to the One who could save Him from His enemies and death. And so he did that in the garden, and he did that on the cross. Even in the midst of his horrific crucifixion, in front of his grieving mother, he entrusted his spirit to God and breathed his last. But hallelujah. Like King David's prayers, the Father heard King Jesus' prayer and also saved him from death in an even more amazing way. The Scriptures teach that God raised Christ from the depths of the grave that at one time threatened to overwhelm Him, and He seated Him at the right hand of His throne on high as King of kings and Lord of lords, all because He loved and delighted in His Son, in whom He was well pleased. So just as Israel would rejoice that God delivered their king from death at the hands of His enemies, and therefore their kingdom was temporarily safe, How much more can we as God's church rejoice that because God raised Jesus from the grave, we too will be raised from the grave. And yet sometimes we can find ourselves distressed about death and grieving like those who have no hope. If you are distressed about death this morning, can I encourage you to take that distress and bring it to God in prayer like David did? Bring it to God in prayer like Jesus did. Christian, just like David and just like Jesus, God loves you. He hears you. And He responds. The resurrection swallows up the distress of death and victory. In May of this year will mark one year since the death of Pastor Tim Keller due to pancreatic cancer. John Piper said that in his final email correspondence with Tim, they were taking great pleasure in the truth of Luke 1020. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. His son Michael Keller reported that during his final hours, Tim prayed, I'm thankful for the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Our brother Tim Keller remembered the promises of God in his word. And this turned his initial distress of a looming death into a joyful determination to see Jesus. God saved our King. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Rejoice, Christian. Our king has conquered death in our place. We will live with him forever, never to taste death again. Now as we close in verse 20 to 47, we will see the third benefit we gain is great confidence to win our spiritual battles now. By spiritual battles or spiritual warfare, I'm speaking about resisting temptation to sin and loving those who oppose the gospel ministry we do. The closing section of Psalm 18, as I've divided it up, is 28 verses long. It could be a second sermon on its own. So for the sake of time, we'll look at David's example of fighting his battles righteously so that we can learn how to fight and how not to fight our spiritual battles. Notice that verse 20 and 24 are similar. These two verses say, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness and rewarded me according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. Verse 20 and 24 act like hamburger buns around the meat of verse 21 to 23, which describe how David fought. Coach David is teaching us here that God rewards victory to those who fight their battles righteously. The first principle of victorious spiritual warfare David speaks of is consistent obedience. Verse 21, he says he kept the ways of the Lord. These ways could include any commands of God that David would have been aware of. When we are engaged in spiritual warfare, Obedience to God is non-negotiable if we desire to win that battle. Jesus once taught that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms of life came, that house was able to stand. But the one who heard Jesus' words but didn't do them was like a foolish man who built on sand, and his house didn't survive the storms of life. So let us not be someone who hears God's Word in church and then wickedly departs from our God. We are to hear and obey if we are to win our spiritual battles. Then in verse 22, he speaks of a second way to fight victoriously, consistently reading God's Word. He states there that... All his rules were before him, and his statutes he did not put away from him. David didn't seek the wisdom of the world to fight his spiritual battles. He learned God's will for his life because he was familiar with God's word, and he regularly consulted it, and he kept all of God's word before him, not just some of it. He kept it all before him so he could learn to apply it in all of life. Kids, imagine for a moment that you worked with me and Jola in construction. And we were putting big, heavy pieces of glass up on the walls of a building. And imagine you wanted to follow all of the boss's good directions. But Joel and I decided to ignore them. And we were just gonna build it how we saw fit, how we wanted to. So Joel asked me, how should we stick the windows to the wall? And I said, let's try bubblegum. And he was like, sounds good to me. (laughs) I think you know what would happen, right, kids? All the windows would fall and crash on the ground. Somebody might get hurt. And our boss would be really angry with us. We'd probably lose our jobs, right? Well, kids, this is what happens when all of us here try to live life by our rules instead of God's rules. We can end up ruining our lives and wasting our efforts. The more we know, kids, of how God wants us to live our lives, the better we can build our lives in a way that He designed for us, right? Kids, I want you to know that it is never too early to start learning about God. Amen? Amen. Like David, to win our spiritual battles, we must move past our pet verses And know our Bibles deeper so we can know more of God's will for our lives. And the more of His will we know, the more we can live the way God created us to live. For some of us it may be too late to change some of the messes that we have made in our sin. But it is never too late to begin learning God's will to move forward. And no matter what mess we find ourselves in because of our sin, when we build according to His will, we have the promise of His reward to look forward to. The third principle David mentions is in verse 23. Regular confession of his sin. He writes, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. Don't be fooled. Blamelessness does not mean sinlessness. David admitted to being a man guilty of sinning. He wrote in Psalm 25, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then he put an exclamation mark. And this is why Christians who commit great sins should never throw in the towel and quit fighting. Our God welcomes us to confess our sins. I wonder if you've ever realized that confession of our disobedience to God is in itself an act of obedience to God. David committed some reprehensible sins that may shock some of you. Think adultery with Bathsheba and masterminding the murder of Uriah, her husband and his loyal soldier, to try to cover up the resulting pregnancy. And yet when David was confronted with his sin, he didn't deny it or lie about it. He cried out in brokenness to God. God disciplined him, but he also forgave him. And yet when David was... uh, Sorry. There were provisions and commands in the law for confession of sin and reconciliation, and David was consistent in obeying these throughout his life. I submit to you that the most godly saints we know are likely the most frequent confessors of their sin. They make it a habit to keep their account short with God. And God rewards those who keep themselves blameless. David ends Psalm 18 joyfully declaring how God brought him victory in his battles. From verse 25 to 29, God's justice combined with David's clean conscience produced within David a confidence to run against an entire troop of soldiers and jump over the walls of an enemy city. He knew his heart was right with God. He knew his God's will, and he obeyed it. And so he was confident God would fight for him, and fight for him he did. How about you? Are you confident you can win that spiritual battle against lust or your anger? cowardice or the fear of man? Are you confident that God can rescue you from any opponents of your faith and gospel ministry? Because if you are in Christ, you should be confident. Confident enough to brandish the sword of the word of God and run against a troop of temptation and jump over the walls of obstacles to righteousness. Verse 30, David wants you to see here, O oh weary Christian soldier, that God, this God, is still perfectly true to his word as he always does what he promises you and acts as a shield for you who take refuge in him. And in verse 31, he challenges us to tell him what other religions God can be a rock in your life like the Lord. Somebody cue the man brothers. Nobody's. David wants you to have confidence in God that if you live according to his word and will, and he will do what he promises. He will show his favor toward you and his anger and justice against your enemies. Some of you may be thinking, though, John, you just don't understand. I'm too weak to fight. My sin is like Mike Tyson in his prime and I feel like a skinny little wimp. Well, my friend, you may be battered and bruised. But ignore the taunts of the devil in the opposing corner. Listen to the God who is in your corner. From verse 31 to the end, David states that the training, strength, support, and even the triumph we all need to win our battles is all provided by God if you trust in Him to train you to fight righteously. So Coach David is telling us that knowing God's will, obeying His will, and confessing your sin is key to winning your spiritual battles. In verse 37 to the end, David describes uh, him doing battle with his foes and with God's strength, he completely annihilates them. Verse 41, their day for defeat has come. Christian, the day to learn how to defeat your sin has come. If you have repented and have faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are believing a lie if you believe your sin is too strong for you to defeat. David was a sinner just like you and just like me. He had his moments of faithfulness and his moments of despicable sin. And at the end of his life, David could still pen a song of great victory over his sin because he learned and obeyed God's will and confessed his sin. He fought righteously. My prayer is that when you get to the end of your life, you too could pen a great song of victory over your sin. Yet David's faithfulness pales in comparison to our King Jesus, doesn't it? He was, Jesus was perfectly righteous in all He did. His pierced hands were perfectly clean in the sight of His Father, and He perfectly fulfilled all the ways and statutes of the law, even to the point of death on a cross. And so God highly exalted Him. God saved our King. Our king won the battle that we couldn't, living a perfectly righteous life. And he did that so he could make us righteous in God's sight by faith. So remember, struggling Christian, that you fight your battles as a soldier of the victorious king. You don't fight to win his love, His love fought to win you. So like David, let's submit to our God. Let God train you through His Word and His church and discipleship to pull the sword of His Word out of that dusty sheath of your bedside table drawer and wield it to kill the temptation to sin. We too will watch those mighty temptations and foes cry out in defeat as we annihilate sin in our lives. Now perhaps you're here listening today and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you feel like an outsider to all of this celebration. Like it's a song of hope that you're not able to sing right now. But you sense God moving in your heart to draw you closer to Him. Take a look at verse 49. It says, For this... That's God's deliverance of David from his enemies. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. The writer of the book of Hebrews used Psalm 18, verse 49, as proof that it was God's will for Jesus to save the Gentiles. Gentiles means us non-Jews. That's most or maybe even all of us here. He wrote in Hebrews chapter 15 that the Jewish Messiah Jesus was sent so that us outsiders, us strangers to God's covenant promises, might do four things. Might glorify God for His mercy, rejoice with His people, praise the Lord, and find our hope in Him. David's victory only saved the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus' victory can save anyone from any nation. So don't let your feelings of being an outsider this morning keep you from becoming an insider. God sent Jesus to turn sinful strangers into His heavenly family. Today, if you sense God calling you to Himself, then turn from your sinful ways and trust in Christ to save you from God's judgment. If you do that today then God in His great grace will issue you your eternal citizenship in heaven. It will be appropriate for you to join us in rejoicing in the message of Psalm 18 that God saved our King and all of His kingdom citizens from death, hell, and the power of the devil. One day, when we are all together in glory forever, all of God's victorious church will celebrate and praise our God for saving our King. I can't wait to sing a song with lyrics like that.